Maybe seated. Good morning. Good to be here with you this morning and to gather together as God's people in the place that He has provided for us. I hope each of you had a happy Thanksgiving and coming out of Thanksgiving and then after yesterday's weather, it's kind of hard to fathom that today is the first Sunday of Advent, right? This this season where we anticipate and look forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior when God comes to His people um, in Christ. And so we're, we're excited to walk through these next five weeks with you as we lead up to Christmas, counting down, anticipating the birth of our Savior. If you are new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. We're Glad that you're here with us this morning. A couple of things to make you aware of, um, announcement-wise. So one is that this morning there is no Sunday school hour following the service. Because of people traveling for Thanksgiving or whatever else, there's no Sunday school, no cross-training this morning. So after this, you can head downstairs, enjoy a cup of coffee, fellowship together, but there will be no programming after um, in the second hour. Also, next Sunday, following the Sunday school hour, next Sunday we'll have our quarterly congregational meeting. So we'd invite you to be a part of that. You'll hear some what's going on in the life of the church, and especially I'm excited to talk about. I'm going to share a little bit next Sunday during that meeting about like a all church kind of discipleship thing we're going to launch following Easter. So I'm really excited about that and what that's going to look like. So. I'd encourage you to come for that meeting, come be a part of that, come hear what we have planned in that area. Um, that'll be really good for the life of the church and for each of us. So I'd encourage you to come be a part of that meeting. If you are um, new or visiting with us this morning and there's anything you want to communicate with the church, um, there's a, a connect card in the seat in front of you. You can fill that out. Um, and you can drop those in the wooden boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where you can place tithes and offerings if you want to contribute to what we're doing here as a church. Again, it's good to gather together with you to, to celebrate this first Sunday of Advent. And so would you pray with me as we continue in worship this morning? Father, we, we thank you, we praise you that we have this season we call Advent to wait with eager anticipation the, the birth of your Son, the celebration of Jesus' birth. Pray that we would use this Advent season to to draw us in new and fresh ways into a deeper awareness of what a great thing you've done for us in Jesus. What a precious gift of grace Jesus' coming is. As we reflect on the birth of your Son, this Advent season, God, would we be amazed by your goodness, 
we be moved to deeper love of you, deeper worship of you in our day-to-day lives. And as we walk through this season where we remember Jesus' first coming, would it also prompt us to look forward to Jesus' second coming. As we walk through life in this sinful, broken world, would we look with eager anticipation and hope to the day when Jesus will come again and set all things right, when there will be no more sickness and pain and death and sin. We will make all things new and all things right. Fathers, we continue in worship this morning. Would you fill our hearts with a deep and abiding desire to see your name glorified? Would this word we sing, the thoughts we think, the, the emotions we feel, would they all serve to bring you honor and glory as we worship you and fellowship together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. Me. Yes. I have a question for you. For me. I don't have many answers. But I'm listening. Do you want to be healed? Who are you? We'll get to that later. But my question remains. Will you take me to the water? Look, I'm having a really bad day. You've been having a bad day for a long time. So? Sir, I have no one to help me into the water when it's stirred up. And when I do get close, the others step down in front of me. And so... Look at me. Look at me. That's not what I asked. I'm not asking you about who's helping you. Who's not helping? Who's getting in your way? I'm asking about you. (laughs) I've tried. For a long time, I know. And you don't want false hope again, I understand. But this pool... 
nothing for you. It means nothing. And you know it. But you're still here. Why? I don't know. You don't need this pool. You only need me. So, do you want to be healed? So let's go. Get up. Pick up your mat. And walk. He said, don't forget your bed. Why does this matter? Because you're not coming back here. That life is over. Everything changes now.
a time to look forward to Jesus's second advent, his second coming, and to remember that even in the face of the hardships of life, God is at work to bring about his good purposes. In Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16, God promises, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and when I fulfill the good promise I have made to the people of Israel and Judah, in those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. These verses look forward with hope to the day when God will send a Savior for his people. Today, as we enter the season of Advent and prepare our hearts for the coming of the righteous branch, we light the candle of hope. remind each of us of God's great promise to us. He is our great hope. He is our Redeemer, and He is Savior. Let's pray. Father, as we enter this Advent, as we enter this Advent season, we pray that you would remind us of your promises to us and the hope we have because you know you we know you will keep your promises. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the source and fulfillment of our hope. 
Would you use the days leading up to Christmas to reflect on what an amazing gift Jesus is? God, in this Advent season, would you be at work in our hearts so that we celebrate the birth of Jesus in a way that honors you? Amen.
Father, we, we thank you, we praise you that Emmanuel has come, that you, you sent your Son to live among us, to be able to identify with us, to be like us in every way, and yet live without sin so that he could die on the cross and forgive us of our sins. Thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were, if you were here last week, my, the start of my sermon, I talked about this the phenomenon known as boomerang CEOs, right? Where, where companies rehire former CEOs to be CEOs again because they, the successor didn't do a great job. So I talked about that last Sunday, and then middle of this week, like maybe you heard the news, right? But Disney forced out their current CEO and hired Bob Iger, who was their CEO from 2000 to 2000, or 2005 to 2020, to be their CEO again. Right? They did exactly what I was talking about. They hired a former CEO to be their, their current CEO. And these stories of, of CEOs being rehired become so common that you hear them in the news and it almost feels like there's some like, deja vu going on. Right? Like it just it happens all the time. And the feeling of deja vu is the unique feeling. Probably you've experienced deja vu at one point or another according to who you ask and exactly what definition they use of deja vu. Somewhere between 67 and 97% of people have said they've experienced deja vu in their lifetime. And deja vu is if French for already seen. Right? It's this, this feeling, this sensation that like we've already lived an identical situation to what we're going through right now. Right? Like at some point in the past, we've experienced the exact same thing. And I find it interesting right, that scientists don't really know what causes deja vu. Right? There's the prevailing theory is that it has something to do with the, the prefrontal cortex of your brain, but no one really knows exactly why it happens. Studies do indicate, though, that at like peaks, you experience it most in your like late teens and early 20s is kind of when you experience it most often. And I remember when I was that age, I used to think, not seriously, but kind of, that like maybe deja vu is like you get to flash back to like some key decision point in your life, and the last time you were here, you made the wrong choice. You get a chance to do it over again. Right? And so like that's kind of what I conceived of deja vu as. Of course, in, like in the movie The Matrix, right, deja vu is a sign of a glitch in The Matrix. But whatever, whatever the explanation for deja vu happens to be, like, it can be an unsettling experience. Right? To, to simultaneously know like, or feel like I've been here before, right? but at the same time know like, there's no way I could have possibly been here before. It's all a bit surreal. And I talk about deja vu because as we come to our passage in 2 Kings 4 this morning, it's really easy to get a deja vu kind of feeling reading this chapter. In this chapter, in 2 Kings 4, we're going to see Elisha perform two miracles that are almost identical to miracles that Elijah performed back in 1 Kings 
17. Like it's eerie how similar they are. And one of the reasons for that is, as we said last week, that God wants us to know and to see, right, that like his plan is not dependent on just one person. That he is just as capable of working through Elisha as he would at working through Elijah. But this passage also contains three more miracles in addition to the one that Elijah performed. So we'll see Elijah perform three additional miracles, and all these miracles together kind of serve to show us that God delights in using his servant to show compassion to people in need. All these five miracles that we see throughout this chapter all have to do with God showing compassion. And so it may seem strange, like we're talking this morning about Advent, and if we're walking into this Advent season, right? it may seem strange that we're just kind of continuing on in this sermon series through the Old Testament, through some prophets, right? Why not jump to, like, a sermon series about Jesus? But I think what we'll see as we look at these miracles, and as we continue through the life of Elisha over the next few weeks, is that like all these miracles of compassion that Elisha performed in this chapter, they all serve to, to foreshadow, right? to point forward to Jesus. They're all meant to cause us to look forward to and anticipate Jesus, which is what this Advent season is meant to do. So with that in mind, let's look at the first miracle that Elisha performed. It's in Second Kings chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7. It says this. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he, rec- he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me what you have in your house. Your servant has nothing there at all, she replied, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all of your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it onto one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and she told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your son can live on what is left. This is the first miracle that is strikingly similar to one performed by Elijah back in 1 Kings 17. In that chapter, a widow and her son were on the brink of starvation. And that was due to a famine. In this case, it's due to her husband being in debt. But in both cases, God used his servant, either Elijah or Elisha, to miraculously supply an abundant amount of oil to provide for a widow and her son. A couple things to to notice here. First, that... Just notice what this woman does when trouble strikes. Her, her husband, who was a prophet, dies. And the first thing she does is she cries out to Elisha. 
And all of us, right? When we are faced with hardship, when we're faced with tragedy, when we're faced with trial, we all have a choice to make about how we're going to respond in that moment. We can be like this woman who, who runs to God's representative for help. Or we can see that tragedy, we can get mad at God, and we can push away from God and withdraw from God and try to figure things out on our own. So this morning, like, I'll just say, like, if you are here, you find yourself facing trials or hardships or difficulties, just urge you to respond like this woman who runs to God in the midst of her trials, right? rather than running away from God. Like, I'd urge you to, to trust that like, God isn't yet a God who delights in showing compassion to people in need. That God delights in showing compassion to those who are hurting and suffering. And you may wonder, if, if God delights to show compassion, as you say, then like, why does he let me go through trials and hardships in the first place? Like, surely it would be better if I just never had to go through them. But in those moments and those thoughts creep in, like, it's important to remember that God knows better than we do. Like, that God has purposes beyond what we can comprehend. There's this, this man named Adoniram Judson. He was a, a missionary. Like, he was the very first long-term missionary to people of Burma. So in his time in Burma, he, he translated the Bible into Burmese. He established the first churches in Burma. He did a lot of great work in Burma. But as he tried to make inroads, being the first missionary there, like, he faced a lot of persecution, faced a lot of hardship. He suffered many things. He was imprisoned for a long period of time. He was robbed. He was faced all kinds of trials. But he persevered. And as he was dying... He's lying on that step, but he, he received word that there were some Jews in Turkey who had read accounts he had written of his sufferings. They had read what he had done. And because of what they read, they, these Jews in Turkey had come to faith in Jesus through his account of his work in Burma. And Judson, upon hearing this, turned to his wife and he said this. He said, This awes me. This is good news. When I was a young man, I prayed for the Lord to send me to the Jews in Jerusalem as a missionary. But he sent me to Burma to preach and suffer the tortures of imprisonment. Now, because of my sufferings, God has brought some Jews in Turkey to repentance. God worked even through Judson's suffering and trial to bring about not only God's good purposes, but the desires of Judson's heart. Like, we don't always get to see right, the reasons behind our suffering the way Judson did here. But stories like that should give us confidence that in the midst of our suffering, right, God is at work to bring about His good purposes. As we go through dark times, our response should be like that of this woman in Second Kings 4, running to God, trusting that He delights to show compassion to His people. And the second thing we should notice in these seven verses is how Elisha responds when this woman does cry out. This woman cries out to Elisha, and he, as, 
as God's servant responds with compassion, saying, what shall I do for you? And as servants of God, we're called to, to respond with compassion to those who are in need. We are made in God's image. And so if God is compassionate towards those who are in need, then we have to be compassionate towards those in need as well. Elisha's response is remarkably similar to the response of Jesus in Mark 10, 51. Jesus encounters the blind man, Bartimaeus. And in that passage, Jesus said to Bartimaeus, What do you want me to do for you? To which Bartimaeus replies, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus gives him his sight. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's compassion toward us. One of the things that has struck me as we've walked our way through the book of Luke is just how compassionate Jesus is toward his people. We just saw it in that clip from the chosen we watched this morning. Jesus is compassionate and loving towards those in need. Which makes sense, right? Because we just said, like, we are called to be God's image bearers. We are we're called to display God's passion, compassion to the world. But the fact of the matter is that like our, our sinfulness, our brokenness, makes us imperfect at bearing God's image. But Jesus has no such problems. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He is the exact representation of God the Father. And God the Father delights to show compassion to those in need, and so Jesus does as well. And we continue to see God's compassion as we look at the second miracle in this passage of Second Kings 4, starting in verse 8, we read this. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put, it, put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay whenever he comes to us. One day, Elisha came. He went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant, Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So, she called, so he called her. And she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all the trouble for us. Now, what can we do for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, She had no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, Call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, You will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. So, before we get to the miracle itself here, I think we should take a moment just to note how this woman showed hospitality towards Elisha. And the command to, to be hospitable to one another is kind of all over the Bible. In Romans 12, Paul is talking about what it looks like to put love into action. And he says this, 
Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Likewise, Peter says, right, talking about the end times, he said, the end of all things is near. So how should we live, he said? He said, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Over and over again in the Bible, we're called to be hospitable people. People who are hospitable towards one another. It's a practical way to show love to each other. So I just want to encourage us, in light of this, like, to be hospitable people. Like, to think about, like, how can I use the home God has blessed me with to, to bless others? How can I practice hospitality towards others? This woman actually chose to use her, her resources to provide meals and a guest room for Elisha whenever he had need. And in response, God blesses her with a miraculous son. It's really important to notice right, that this woman didn't show hospitality expecting something in return. Right? That wasn't her motivation. Right? In fact, when he offered to do something for her, she said, basically, I have everything I need. Like, I don't need anything. But then Gehazi mentions to Elisha, this woman and her, her husband have no son. Which is a huge deal in that culture. It's a mark of shame in that culture. They would have no son. And God shows compassion to this woman and her husband by giving them a miraculous son. And miraculous children are something of a theme throughout the Bible. God often shows his sovereignty and his power and ultimately his compassion by providing children in circumstances where it seems impossible. But there's, there's Isaac born to Abraham and Sarah when they're old. There's the prophet Samuel born to Hannah and Elkanah when it seems like Hannah is barren. There's John the Baptist born to Zechariah and Elizabeth when it seems like Elizabeth is barren. But the most miraculous and the most compassionate gift of a miraculous son is the one we anticipate during Advent. The birth of Jesus is more miraculous than any of these because he was not just born to someone previously thought barren, he was born to a virgin. And the birth of Jesus is more compassionate than all of these because it is through his birth that the whole world can be saved from their sin. Jesus is the ultimate miraculous son. He's the ultimate expression of God's compassion. We continue to see that compassion as we continue in this passage, continuing in verse 18. The child, this miraculous son, he, he grew. And one day he went out to his father who was with the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head. His father told the servant, Carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants 
and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. She sat on the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Caramel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman. Look, look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I not ask you for a son? Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand, and run. Don't greet anyone you meet, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, The boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took herself and went out. And there's like obviously a lot going on in that string of texts that we could go into. There's a lot of a lot of questions that like don't on the surface make a great deal of sense, and frankly, I don't have a great explanation for some of them. Like, why did she tell her husband that everything was fine? Why did she tell Gehazi everything was fine? Like, I don't know. Right? Right? But I think the main idea, the highlight of this story, right, is that this son, who had been miraculously conceived, suddenly dies. Right? So the son's mom goes to Elisha, and Elisha shows up, and he eventually resurrects the son. This is, this is the second miracle then that is very similar to a miracle that Elijah performed back in 1 Kings 17. In that case, the son also dies, and then Elijah prays, and then Elijah also stretches himself out on top of the boy, and the boy is brought back to life. And similarly here, Elisha prays to God, and then he stretches himself out on top of the boy, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, mouth to mouth. And by doing that, it's kind of, strange as it may seem, like I, Elisha does that to identify himself with the boy in his death. And as he does that, the boy is brought back to life. 
And another thing to notice about this passage here is that this is another example of, of someone running to God when, when tragedy strikes, rather than running away from God. Right? In this case, the woman quite literally runs to God right? in the form of his prophet, Elisha. Right? That she knew that he was at Mount Caramel, which is about 20 miles from her home in, in Shunem. And upon hearing that her son is dead, she immediately sets out to cover that distance. Like she trusts that God is able to, to show compassion through his servant, Elisha. One other thing to note about this passage here is that right, this town of Shunem, where this resurrection takes place, right, just a couple of miles up the road from a, a tiny little village called Nain. And it's in this tiny little, out-of-the-way, unimportant village of Nain that one who is even greater than Elisha and Elijah would come and raise a young boy to life. In Luke 7, we read this. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, that he had compassion on her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and he touched the beer that was carrying him. And the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And so once again we see the miracles of Elijah and Elisha pointing forward to the life and ministry and miracles of Jesus. But it's interesting, right, that when Jesus heals this boy, he doesn't pray first to ask God to heal him. He doesn't stretch himself out on top of the boy. He simply speaks with the power of God because he is God. He doesn't have to go through the, the motions that Elisha and Elijah, you just, as God himself, he speaks and it happens. He is greater than even Elijah and Elisha. And of course, even Jesus' act of raising this boy at Nain was only a, a small foretaste of his own resurrection. At the ultimate resurrection of an only and beloved son. Like all these miracles of resurrection in the Bible, right? The works of Elijah and Elisha, like Jesus raising this boy at Nain, or Jesus raising Lazarus, like all these works of resurrection, that they ultimately are there to point us forward to an even greater resurrection. When Jesus, after being killed, would, would three days later raise again right, as a sign that he had defeated Satan, sin, and death. So that anyone who believes in him also has hope of experiencing resurrection. Right, but the resurrection that we have hope of experiencing in Jesus is even greater than any of these other resurrections. Right? Like the boy in in 2 Kings 4 here, the boy at Nain, Lazarus, the boy Elijah resurrected. They would all die again. But when we are resurrected, like we are resurrected to eternal 
life, never to die again. This whole, this whole passage of 2 Kings 4 points us forward to, to the gospel that is so succinctly summarized in John 3.16. That for God so loved, for God had so much compassion for the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Even though we all will die an earthly death, because of Jesus we can have confident hope that one day we will be resurrected. Just like the boy in 2 Kings 4, just like Lazarus, just like the boy at Nain, Just like Jesus, we will be raised from death. But for us, it will be to eternal life. That's why this morning we lit the hope candle. The coming of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, means that we can have a confident hope that this life is not all there is. But that through Jesus, if we believe in Him, our sins are forgiven, and we will be raised to everlasting life. But God's compassion doesn't end even there. Like even though there's no greater act of compassion that God could do than raise the dead, He isn't only concerned with big displays of compassion. He also shows compassion in, in smaller matters. And we, see that, we see this at the end of 2 Kings 4. In verse 38, we read this. Elijah returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and picked up many of its gourd and his garment could hold. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured out for the men But as they began to eat it, they cried out, Man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Elisha said, Get some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Here God showed compassion to hungry, needy people through his servant Elisha by purifying some stew. And it seems that like this man who went out to gather gourds, he, he confused an edible gourd with a, a toxic or a poisonous gourd, and so they put those gourds in the stew, and it started to make people sick. But God uses Elisha to, to purify the stew so that it becomes edible. And on one level, this is just God showing compassion by providing edible food to hungry people. But it's also God showing compassion by redeeming the labor of this man who collected the gourds. Like maybe you can put yourself in this man's shoes. Like, like maybe you've been there, right? Where you're trying your best, you're trying to be helpful, but no matter what you do, it seems like everything just goes wrong. But your best efforts seem to do no good, maybe even seem to cause harm. Maybe you've poured your heart and soul into helping someone in need or helping a child who's fallen on hard times and it feels like nothing you do works. 
Maybe it feels like everything you do just makes things worse and worse and worse. Maybe you're aware that your own sin taints your labors. But this, this little story here it should, it should give us confidence that God can redeem and use even our imperfect labors. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And it's not in vain, not because your labor is good enough by itself, but because God uses it. And God redeems labor. God redeems your effort for His purposes. Because of Jesus and God's compassionate, redeeming work, even our sin-stained labors are not in vain. God uses our labor, flawed though it may be, to, to bring about His good purposes. And finally, Elisha performs one more miracle of compassion in 2 Kings 4. In verse 42 we read, A man from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man of God twenty loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord said. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. So here we have just another miracle, another compassionate miracle, a miracle of multiplied bread. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one other than to say like it's another way that God shows compassion. He feeds people in need. He feeds hungry people. And also to point out that this little story points forward again to Jesus. That it's remarkably similar to the time that Jesus feeds the 4,000 and feeds the 5,000 with very little bread. Again, it shows us that Jesus is the greater Elisha. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's compassion and His love for His people. And that we're called to be like Him, to be conformed to His image. So I just want to close today with, with two applications that stand out from this chapter. The first application is this. First, receive God's compassion. To, to be a willing recipient when God shows compassion. And the first way to do that is by, by trusting Jesus. As we've said over and over again, there's no greater expression of God's compassion that He sent His Son to come, to live among us, to identify with us. And yet not sin and to be put to death on a cross. To die a death He didn't deserve in our place for our sins. But by believing in Him, we could have eternal life. It's like the first way to receive God's compassion is that if you've never believed in Jesus, I just urge you to believe in Him. Like that God's compassion toward you. Trust in Jesus. If you have questions about what it looks like to believe or trust in Jesus, I'd love to talk to you more about that. But the first way you can respond to God's compassion. Right, it's the second way 
to receive God's compassion is, as we said, when you're going through hard times, to respond like the widow with the oil, to respond like the woman whose son died. They ran to God in despair. By doing so, by running to God, not running from God, they receive God's compassion. So don't let trials or hardship or tragedy drive you away from God. Instead, if you faith the trials of life, run to Him. Receive His compassion. The second application point here then is to, to extend God's compassion. If we said our, our God is a compassionate God, and we are people made in His image, and as His servants, we are called, like Elisha, to be the means that God uses to show compassion to others. In Colossians 3, we read, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Would we be people that are clothed with compassion, that are clothed with kindness, that are clothed with humility and gentleness and patience? Especially as we, we enter this Advent and Christmas season, it's the time when life in our culture can be busy and hectic and stressful and then brings about family interactions that are not fun. Like in the midst of all of that, would we be people who reflect God's compassion? Would we be God's image bearers? Would we reflect God's compassion to those around us? Would we be clothed with compassion, clothed with kindness? clothed with humility and gentleness, clothed with patience. Would we be that kind of people? Would we see God's compassion towards us in 2 Kings 4? Would we see God's compassion towards us in Jesus? And is there nothing more than to show that compassion to others? And be compassionate towards the people God brings into our lives. Not because they deserve it. We certainly didn't deserve it when God sent Jesus for us. Let's be compassionate because we want to reflect God's compassionate image to the world. Let us be and live like Jesus, the perfectly compassionate one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your compassion to us. Thank you that when we were without hope in our sin, when we were rebelling against you, wanting nothing to do with you, you sent Jesus come at that first Christmas to, to be born, to live a sinless life. So that by believing in Him, our sins can be forgiven and we can look forward to eternal resurrected life with you. 
Thank you that you loved us enough to do that. Thank you that you had enough compassion on us to do that. Thank you that even as we suffer in this life, even as we walk through tragedy in this life, you do not leave us to handle that on our own, but that you invite us to come to you so that you can show compassion. You are at work, even in the midst of trials and difficulties, to bring about your good purposes. We run to you when trials come. Throw ourselves on your compassion. Father, would we be people who show compassion to others, even when they don't deserve it, even when they're being difficult? Would we be known as compassionate, kind, gentle, patient? loving people. Father, though we are imperfect, would you help us to bear your image well? Do you help us to display your love and compassion to the world around us? we be like Jesus? Do we show compassion like Jesus? And would people around us be caused to glorify you because of our compassion? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go from here today, would you go both receiving God's compassion and also displaying God's compassion to others. You are dismissed.
His mercy is more. Yeah.